And welcome again to another In the Clip Corey Legal Zone. We're going to call it that way because we're going to change up every time. We have to make it exciting. So In the Corey Zone, we'll call it. Actually, it's in the Corey Larry Walters Zone. Uh, anyway, today we have with us, of course, the amazing Corey Silverstein. And we have, uh, oh, you can't talk? Sorry. I, I should mute you, actually. And then we have, of course, the infamous Lar Lawrence Walters, way above uh, Corey on the level of attorneys, just so you know, <laughs> in case anyone's ranking attorneys here. And, of course, we have Dr. Chantel, the only real doctor on this channel. Uh, Corey tries to be a doctor, but unfortunately he's not. Um, but he is a good attorney, and uh, I just kid with him, of course, because why not? Because, you know, he's got a big head, and we're just going to make it a little smaller right now. Uh, anyway, so today's topics are going to be, today we're going to talk about uh, some things about California. <laughs> That's what I remember from what Chantal just said, some kind of number five. Uh, Assembly Bill 5, which Assembly has Bill number five California, has yes. passed, and intellectual property rights. Yes. All right, Those awesome. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Dr. Chantal, since we're still good at this whole navigational thing and you can go start from there and uh, welcome to everybody else who's on here and uh, thanks for coming in and on to you doc awesome so yes something happened in California and uh, Corey and Larry are gonna explain why it actually does matter assembly bill 5 AB 5 which is something that um, essentially is there to reclassify independent contractors as employees. Now, Corey and Larry are gonna explain the ins and outs of this, but this is something that has already passed, unless I am uh, incorrect, which I don't think I am. It and has been passed, yeah. Go into effect in January, 2020, meaning like in two and a half months. So this is pretty important. Um, so I guess, um, Corey, do you wanna just start us off and explain what yeah. is AB5? So, all right. So, hello. It's very nice to be here again. And I'd just like to note that I allowed Neil to go through his fine introduction without interrupting him. I appreciate and, it. And Neil, your, your hair transplant doctor just called me and he actually told me that the hat is screwing up the implants. So, you might want to, you know, not have that on too tight. So, anyway, so, so, other than talking about Neil's bad implants, what we do have to talk about today is we do have to talk about AB5. Now, a lot of you who have been sending in messages, uh, emails, um, and, and actually, frankly, calling my office to talk about this, I, I, I'm really happy that you guys are, are taking this seriously because it's a big deal. So let's talk real quick what's going on. So first of all, AB5 applies only if you are in the state of California. So it's a California law. It is not a federal law. It is a California law. Wait, question. If you are a California-based business, for instance, Flirt for Free is a California-based business, and you have employees that work outside of the state of California, does AB5 apply to you? Yes. Okay. But, yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk, <clears throat> well... That's important. <laughs> the, well, the employee... Well... That's actually a difficult, that's okay, a difficult. We'll get to, okay, we'll get to it. I started just, okay. Chantel decided to jump to the end of the presentation because she's like kind of a quick finisher like that. But yeah. let, let, I learned it from you, Corey. Pulling, <laughs> so pulling it back, pulling it back to the beginning before we go 
that far. All right, so basically what happened, guys, is that the state of California has decided that they are going to be the leaders in the United States in terms of the destruction of the classification known as independent contractors. So when you classify a worker, a worker being someone who's doing some sort of service, you generally can classify them into two different sects. Either one, you can classify them as an employee, or B, you can classify them as an independent contractor. Now, typically, many businesses have, uh, and, and frankly, the, the workers themselves, have had various different reasons why they would want to be classified as an independent contractor versus employee. Now, what the state of California, though, has said is that the state of California has said that we are going to make it extremely tight to be actually an independent contractor. And so when I say extremely tight, I mean that basically what, what, what AB5 does, and just to take it one step back, guys, AB5 is actually just the codification of a California Supreme Court ruling that actually, I believe, it was last year, I believe, that that, that case came out. I believe it was back in last April, I believe. But regardless, so what we have now is the state of California has said that for all intents purposes, they are going to look at you unless you are in a very, 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 very narrow group as an employee. <clears throat> now, they have created a list of exceptions. And actually, as of today, the state of California openly admits that there are going to be more types of industries uh, that will be added to their exception list. But that's basically what you have now is different industries are using lobbyist groups to petition to the state to try to get added to these exception lists. So one of the biggest things here that this is going to affect, though, is this is going to affect a uh, employer's bottom line. Now, the difference between treating someone as an employee versus an independent contractor is approximately 20 to 30% more in increased wage costs. So what I mean by that is that if you're classified as an employee, now you've got to worry about Social Security taxes, Medicare, unemployment, disability insurance, uh, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, sick leave, minimum wage laws, everything. Yes, whoever just said healthcare, um, Madame Raven, yes, everything. And so what's happened is the state of California has basically said that we're, they want their, in reality, they want their peace. The state of California doesn't get to share in the, uh, in the taxation when people are treated as independent contractors. Now they're going to really be able to share a lot more in the wealth because obviously they're going to be imposing all of the different taxes and such. So now that we have AB5, it's like, what does it mean for all of you? Well, what it means for all of you is that you can no longer just say, well, I've always treated myself as an independent contractor for whoever I'm working for, so that's going to continue. You can't do that anymore. As far as I'm concerned now, you've got to go back to square one, and every single worker relationship has to be reevaluated from beginning to end, meaning you have to do the analysis of what are the services are uh, being provided and go through the test that's set forth in AB5. What does the test include, Corey? You know, it's, you know, it's just such an amazing thing that you would happen to ask that question right when I moved that. I have um, a list of three things that you can do to be your ABC test to decide whether or not you are an employee or an independent contractor. If so would... if you are free from control or direction of the employer... Um, you can elaborate on what that means in a second, Corey. Yep. Um, if you perform work outside of the core business 
purpose. So whatever the business, their sort of general, like if their general business is producing something, if you are contributing to content production, that type of thing. And then um, that you, and this one I don't quite understand, you're going to need to explain this to us, Corey, too. If you generally engage in an independent, established trade, occupation, or business, what do those things mean? Fun, huh? I know. They sound really non-applicable. So for all so three of those are exceptions? These are, this is the test. No, the test. So in order to, so if you're trying, if you're sitting there right now and you're like, okay, Am I an employee of Clips for Sale or am I an independent contractor that works for Clips for Sale? If you're trying to figure out what you are or if Clips for Sale, for instance, is trying to figure out what their, you know, people who they're working with, what you are, you have to go through this test. And now Corey's going to explain the three parameters of the test. Okay. So two things. One, the case that I was talking about before is actually known as the Dynamex case. For those of you oh, yeah. that, that can't spell like Chantel, it's D-Y-N-A-N. I can spell. <laughs> the case. That's where this mess started. It was April of 2018, so I wasn't losing my mind. Uh, one thing to remember, though, also is that the way the, the statute is written is that the burden is actually on the employer. So what happens is, is, is let's say for some reason, the state of California decides that they're going to look into a particular worker. The burden is on the employer to prove that they classified the employee correctly. So when you talk about the, the, the three tests, like you said correctly, Chantel, the first test is that the worker is free from the control and direction of the hirer in connection with the performance of the work. So what that means is, again, this is going to be that if there is any direction coming from an employer, so let's hypothetically say one of the examples that, that people right now are giving me um, in an entertainment context, let's say you have a, uh, a person who is a, a, a uh, artist, a singer, and the singer wants to go out and hire a songwriter. And the songwriter goes out and she goes and, you know, writes a bunch of songs for the singer, etc. Well, under this analysis that I've actually been reading today, the state of California would say that that songwriter is no longer an independent contractor that songwriter is now actually an employee and would be entitled to all of the benefits under California law. Because they are taking direction from the person who hired them to write the song. Correct. So if, you're, if you're hiring somebody to perform in a scene, to write a song, to paint a wall, and you say, hey, I want that wall painted purple, or hey, I want this scene shot like this, like I want I you actually to think in I, that I, direction. I think painters and plumbers are actually kind of the categories that I've been looking at as being kind of like the safe categories. So say for example, Chantel, you were having someone come over to do some plumbing work at your house. I think those people would, it would still be safe to say that the relationship was that of an independent contractor. You just saying, Hey, something's wrong uh, with my sink, come over, fix it. I think in that case, it would be very hard pressed for the state of California to say that there was an employee relationship. Okay. Yeah. And, and part of it is that it has to be some kind of ongoing relationship. It can't just be a one-off, you know, come over to my house and fix one thing. It has to be some sort of, you know, temporal ongoing relationship. Exactly. What sets, what's, what establishes an ongoing relationship? So if somebody comes over and fixes <laughs> something. The once, courts, <laughs> the courts will tell you, you know, it's okay. a case by okay. case. Okay. Well, <laughs> so there. let me, so, so just to, so let me give you a practical example since, you know, we're all in the, everyone who's taking part in this panel right now is in the industry. And let's talk about one particular example where we've actually already seen a case that the industry has lost. Um, and that is in the, in the phone sex industry. 
Um, we just actually happened to uh, finish a case that Larry and I were involved in, and the state of California, in this case, the Unemployment Labor Board, determined that a phone sex worker is, in fact, an employee, not an independent contractor. So we do actually are already kind of seeing which direction they're going in terms of, you know, when you ask Chantal, well, how much ongoing control? Well, you know, my opinion of whether or not that that's really fair and, and, and uh, uh, the right decision really doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that the state of California is going to be veering very much on the side of relationships being employer-employee. Right. So can you go back to the, the next two? So this was just the first parameter of the test. And do you have to show just one or do you have to show all three? Like, how do we pass this test? This all three of the- Okay, all, all have to be, have to be all met. three have to be demonstrated in order to be an employee versus an independent contractor or vice versa. Okay, so what about parameter number two? So let's say you survive the, per, the first parameter, which you probably won't, but if you get to the second one, the second parameter would be the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So in that case, this would have to be something that is basically, the independent contractor is doing something completely outside of, of the person's business. So perfect example, I operate a law firm. Now it just so happens that lawyers are, uh, did get an, uh, an exemption. So I, I know you can all hate the lawyers, but regardless, if I was in California and I, for example, uh, you know, went off and, and I decided that I was going to hire, like the example I gave you was, was the painter, the painter to come into my office and paint the walls and so forth. This would kind of be, uh, the second part of the test. The painter obviously is doing work that I don't do uh, in my usual course of business. It's not something that I do. It's not something that I ever do. So that's kind of the the, the kind of the best example I can give you. To okay. that, one. that one makes more sense than the other one, honestly. <laughs> yeah, but just remember, it's all three. And also, yeah, yeah. and and the and the and so far, what California's indicated, and again, this came from from Dynamics, is that they are very much trending on the side of the employer employee relationship versus that of the independent contractor. Yeah, obviously. I mean, there's a, there's a reason why they're doing this. So, and then well, what they're trying to do is establish yeah, that. Well, California, California has been for, you know, they, they want to really be the, they, they want to take this, like we're the labor leaders of the, of the country. We're the place to come where employees get treated the absolute best. You want to come to California, we're going to make sure that as a California worker, you're protected and you get all the benefits from the law that, that can, you can possibly get. But here's what the big issue is. And this is where, in my opinion, it's stupid because I don't think, I think it's short-sighted and it doesn't take into account how beneficial independent contractors actually are to the entire, uh, call it working public. And frankly, not every single worker wants this. There are plenty of workers out there that want to be treated as an independent contractor. They don't want to be an employee. They don't want the benefits. They would rather have that independent contractor relationship. And the state of California, despite how many people have actually protested, has basically said, well, too bad. We believe this is more about protecting employees and less about uh, protecting businesses. Well, I mean, don't even get me started on the state of California and their uh, business unfriendliness, right? But let's go over the third parameter and then let's talk about how this is going to possibly, probably directly impact the industry. The worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade occupation or business of the same nature as the work performed for the hiring entity. So this becomes... Another problem. So say, for example, um, 
we can use campsite operator. If you're a campsite operator, or a campsite platform, and your business is custom to having camp models perform on your campsite, then at this point, once again, we would have a situation where uh, the model would the worker, excuse me, would most likely fail the test and be deemed an employee versus an independent contractor. So let me ask, how would this pertain to like th listening to all this? As far as clips for sale goes, since we don't produce content, anything like that is me as the as the owner or whatever. So it's really, I I would imagine I could still treat everyone as independent contractor, me as the. Because you're in Florida. Yeah, well, but what about the guy? That's, that doesn't ma that doesn't matter though, Chantel, because because it would still apply to any 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 uh, California clips for sale producer uh, artist would have to would have we would have to do that evaluation. So. Neil, to answer, I mean, again, to answer your question, sort of, um, quite frankly, it's a, it, we really don't know yet. And, and unfortunately, what we're going to have to do, and this kind of sucks, is that most likely there's going to be a fall person at some point, and the state of California is going to probably through the courts and the, and the labor processes are going to make a decision with regard to uh, a similar kind of setup that Clips for Sale has. Now, what some of my clients are doing, and this is quite honestly, and I saw someone in the in the chat comments, they're, they're rolling through fast here, is one of my clients has actually already decided that they're closing the door to accepting California models right now. They're just, they're, wow. they're not going to take the risk. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be in a position where they get fined some monumental amount of money and have to owe some monumental uh, back taxes and all sorts of stuff. So um, it's already starting. And uh, obviously... Uh, this is one of the reasons why we're talking about it today. It's it's extremely serious. It's extremely substantial. Um, it's extremely already going to happen in January. Like it's in effect. Like, but, well, but but you yeah. see, but here's but here's where but here's where the funny thing is because of the the, the Dynamics case, it's already happening. All that's happening in January is that the codification of the law is taking effect. The case law itself that anybody relies on now is the Dynamics case. Sure. And the Dynamics and there's already uh, been labor dispute. Or excuse me decisions in this regard where the dynamics case is being relied on like i said like i said to you a few minutes ago larry and i have already seen a case where phone sex operators for example are uh are being deemed as um independent contractors first or excuse me i got that backwards employee versus independent contractor so you know if there's if there's again this is one of those things that for you know for people in california I think they got it wrong. I think they got it wrong for, I, I don't, I think it's completely anti-business and the grand That's scheme. That's what California is. And well, and in the grand scheme of things, I, I think what's ultimately going to happen is you're going to find a lot of people trying to find ways around it. And um, unfortunately though, you're going to be seeing, you're going to see news headlines over the next little while come January, even where companies are going to get hit. You're going to see fines. You're going to see private lawsuits. You're going to see all sorts of stuff related to this. Is there, so when you say people are going to move, I mean, think about this in terms of, of worker protection, right? So think about um, when people were trying to do safety regulations, say on set, because now let's just talk for a moment about conventional content production in California. I mean, are they going to start, paying people in cash or something like that. So then there's no record or. Well, this, th it's interesting you'd say that because the article that I was reading earlier today when I was preparing for today is actually goes through this entire entertainers are not exempt yet. There is no exemption for entertainers. Now entertainers are trying to, but there was an article that I read this morning. It was in the Los Angeles times. I think it just came out yesterday or today. It's an incredible article. And it's talking about this, this songwriter who's like, she's like, well, what do I do with the people that are in my studio that are, well, I'm singing our, 
you know, playing with all the, the buttons and the knobs to get the sound acoustics right. I hire those people usually on a, on a, um, on a recording to recording yeah. basis. Now though, am I going to have to hire them as an employee? And the answer to the question, at least from what the, the article in the LA Times seems to suggest is yes, those people are going to have to be treated as employees. So if a, if a band is playing in a bar on a Friday night, are they employees for three hours? Like, is that uh, going to Also, what is that going to do when you think about people getting paid? So people who are used to a babysitter, a musician, a porn performer, that you get paid when the work is done, then you get handed a check or cash or whatever. Is there going to have to be like a payroll cycle? And then that's going to have to happen because then the person needs to have taxes and this because now they're employee so yes. even if they're an employee for four hours they're still an employee which means the check is not going to be ready at the end of those four hours if you'll notice if you'll notice in the actual law it doesn't say anything about the length of time that the person is performing the service so whether the whether the worker performs service for an hour or whether they perform services for a number of days that's not one of the that's not one of the of the questions that got at, that gets asked in the test. So again, going back to the example I gave you a minute ago, where you have the the sound synthesizer, I believe is the the correct technical term that comes in to to help run an audio room for an audio recording. Based on what what so far people are concluding is that person will have to be treated as an employee for the time mm -hmm. period that they're working. Right. So it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not that the sound engineer person is getting $50 an hour for however many hours they could be getting a thousand dollars until the job is done. Right. Like a flat rate. Okay, My question is more, well, yeah, it doesn't matter. However, they're being, whoever they've negotiated with that person. My question and my point is, okay, so say it's a project that runs a week. It's a shoot that run, runs five days, or it's a two hour shoot or a two hour project. There's not going to be, you know, Susan, the payroll lady sitting there at nine o'clock at night in the recording studio or on set in the Valley. Susan is a nine to five employee who's going to come in the next day, or she's going to run payroll when she does it, or she's going to be a third party proxy payroll service that the employer hires out. Right. And right. my point being is that people are not going to get handed their checks at the end of the night like people are used to. Instead, no. it's going no. to be on the 1st and the 15th of the month or whatever. Now, for some people, okay, fine. You know, cam models are used to getting paid out, you know, whatever that cycle is. You know, Neil pays out very frequently, but monthly. And there's that. But for people who are, are working for like a day rate, that's going to come to a halt, correct? Well, you're going to have to, what will happen is that, remember that ultimately if someone is deemed an employee, they have to then fall within all of California's labor laws, which means that you've got to, when you hire them, you've got to collect the correct documentation. You have to report it to the state. You have to collect all of their verification, all of their verification docs so that you can take out appropriate payroll taxes and, and uh, workers comp and everything that has to be done. And so, no, it, it, in reality, if someone was going to come in and do the job, they'll be they'll be paid in accordance with the company's payroll policies, and right. the company's payroll policies will have to comply with California law. So, it's, so are, are a lot of them going to use payroll services like paychecks and ADP and so forth? Of course, that's what they're going to have to do because it's com it's complicated. I think I'm looking through the questions and I'm seeing what Madam Raven is writing and I'm seeing what Lark is writing, and I think. Um, there's all of these little little exceptions and things that people do. Yes, you can cash out every day on some campsites and some spaces, of course. But the idea is is then is that cash out, that daily cash out, 
or is that you know day rate handed over cash out however it is and whatever work you're doing within the business is that going to be is is this new ab5 set of rules going to be able to be processed through on the same day meaning that if you are owed a thousand dollars for work that you did that day that now has to go through that whole tax process before you get the $800 or whatever is going to be left over. Correct. The company that, that's, that's the thing that's, and, and I see people saying, Oh, poor an exception. Can't you be fined? I mean, yes, that's true. Except now, how do we, how do we do that in accordance with California law? That's the thing that is really, of course, nobody cares, right? The, the people who are making these laws don't consider actually the impact on the worker. And that's going to be a problem. People who are used to getting their money, like when they do the work, those we're, now, we're not going to have to wait because it's going to have to go in, through that process. In theory, the way it would have to work would be that everything would be have to taken care of well ahead of hand. So say, for example, Chantel, I hired you as an employee in California to do something for me. We would get all the paperwork out of the way before the job sure. ever starts. So in theory, if I, if I needed to pay you, if you had to, if you insist that you be paid the day of for the project, whatever, it still could be done. As long as your, your payment, so as long as, so if you filled out your paperwork in advance, so say you were a performer or you were doing work on a set or however you were doing that, if you had filled out your employee paperwork, your W-2 and your this and that and whatever in advance, and then you had said, okay, so I'm doing this girl, girl scene and I'm getting paid however much I'm getting paid. And so they could run payroll in advance and be there with your check that is less all the taxes and they could hand exactly. it to you then if exactly. they did in advance. So then now the next question is how are the small businesses or even large business? I mean, think about that shoots getting canceled, changed times, this, all of that stuff the, to have all of that stuff done in advance like that. That is a wild amount of and work. Now- fine, but it's work to put on the employer in this instance. So even thinking about that, aren't employers then going to handle their bookings or this, that, all that stuff differently now because they have to go, oh shit, what if this person cancels or what if this go, what, what happens? Yes. And that is specifically what I was telling you earlier. Businesses are already making tough decisions and there are businesses that are making preparations now to stop using California workers. Now, it is a huge expense. And there was actually, Chantel as well, a massive group of businesses that also fought this. Now, I would tell you guys, just so everyone knows, like kind of the, a little bit of the, I'm sure you guys already know this, but it, you know, it's Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. Those were the big companies that really California took the most interest in that, that kind of led to this slippery slope that's you know, kind of continued to go faster and faster and faster. But ultimately, Chantel, businesses, this is going to cost businesses more money. In my opinion, it's going to, I think the, the individual workers don't benefit from this at all, especially the ones that want to be treated as independent contractors. And so everyone's going to have to make adjustments. And I think what you're going to see is, again, you're going to have another example. This is just another example of the state of California uh, chasing commerce out of the state. Here's a question, Corey. As an LA model, um, if, and it's from uh, Madam Raven. So if she got an LLC in Vegas, can it? Uh, a California company still hire her, I guess, or can you still work if you're well, if you're sort of like how that, do you see the question there? What she's I know it, yeah, and we're getting that question. It's not going to matter if she sets up a Nevada LLC and then the Nevada LLC is providing the service. 
if the if the individual providing that service is in the state of California, the state of California, they're not they're not naive. They, they, they've seen all the, the tricks and the spins and so forth. And they've got teams and they have tons and tons of, of, of uh, labor people that will look into these matters. If in fact, someone comes, you know, subject to a claim, what you're going to see is you're going to see a huge uptick in unemployment benefit claims. That's what, that, that's what one of the biggest things out of this is going to be. You're going to have a lot of people who are going to take positions that typically were independent contractor positions. They're going to leave that position. They're going to file a claim for unemployment benefits. And quite candidly, they're going to get it. That's one of the areas where we're really going to see the, the major significance here in the very short term. So it sounds like this is a super complicated shit show that's about to uh, go down. Yay. Um. <laughs> you know, like I said to you before, it's like, you know, it's not about to go down. It's happening that is going down. The only difference is that come January, it's codified. And so by being codified, again, they're taking the case law and now you, now you have your statutory, you have your statutory language. So, you know, it's what it's going to be. And this is, and this is what the bottom line is. We got to go back to the drawing board and every worker type situation. You can't just blindly anymore just say, oh, it's independent contractor because that's what it's been for the last 20 years. 1099 me. That is not <laughs> going to work. If you're dealing in any way, shape or form with the state of California, you've got to go back, go through the whole test. It has to be analyzed and you got to be careful because the, 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 if you look at what the statute says and I put here, I added the uh, link for those of you that want to read this thing. There are all sorts of, of different things that are put in here now in terms of penalties oh, wow. and fees and interest and late things. And you can get absolutely mauled and whacked with penalties and fees for not complying. All this is going to do is cause people to move business out of state and stop taking, like you said, taking business from California workers. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I, I'm just, a, you know, all I can do is, is when I see these laws is I can sit with Larry and we, Larry and I have discussions about them all the time. We can talk about them. We can analyze them because we're not, Larry and I aren't, aren't politicians. We're not the legislature. We don't write this stuff. All we can do is analyze it. And all I can tell you is based on just my opinion and for what I've read, I personally do not see how doing this is really ultimately going to help either side, either on the employees or excuse me, the worker side or the company side. And Larry might disagree, but that's, you know, that's why you've heard the expression, two lawyers, three different opinions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it is, it, it's been an issue that the adult dance clubs have dealt with for many years. You know, their, their attempts to categorize them as employees and, you know, a lot of them don't like it. It makes it harder for them to find work. A lot of the clubs have been driven out of business as a result of this effort to categorize their dancers as employees. So, you know, these laws have a lot of unintended consequences. And, and we may see that, as you said, Corey, with the unemployment claims, all of a sudden that'll become available and the flock of, of businesses leaving L.A., um, less production occurring in L.A. potentially. It's, you know, it, it could hurt their own interests. But, you know, right now the politicians are, are responding to this effort to, uh, to you know, buy the employees to label more and more people as employees and so that's, that's because with. lawmakers aren't usually the people who are actually impacted by the laws they create that's right keep in mind just just larry and i have spent our careers fighting government regulation so remember guys we're on the other side of it so don't shoot us we're not we're, we're oh, just the that's the messengers that's you're the messenger <laughs> don't get mad at neil either because he's also a messenger so this is what I was trying to figure out. So, but basically, all what what I would need to figure out then would be how 
how we are looking at the all the, the all the producers uh, if they fall into that category or not. That's the simple thing. Pro the producers that are California based, right? The right. The California right. The producers themselves have an uphill battle with hiring models. That's a whole different story for them, which is a nightmare in itself. Yeah. But, but as far as um, we would have to figure out then as a company itself, as Clips for Sale, the entity, you know, how is it that uh, are they still independent contractors or not? That's the question. Even a programmer, like if we have a programmer that's independent contractor that lives in California, he can no longer be independent contractor from what you're saying. Correct. And that's the example that I gave you earlier. For example, if, if I hired Chantel, uh, Chantel a, a social media expert. If I hired Chantel and Chantel was in the state of California, there's a good argument that Chantel can make that she'd be entitled to California state benefits. It's, it, it, it's really but not like that, but then that person who's used to say getting say 10,000 a month as a contractor to program, now they're going to get less, but they're going to say, well, you need to add more so that after taxes, See? I'm still equaling that. And that you're thinking the way you're thinking the way someone with common sense and someone should be thinking about it <laughs> because ultimately Neil, like you just said, what this is going to do is this is going to, this means that ultimately the worker will be paid less. Okay. So the worker at the end of the day, the law that's supposed to be for the worker is ultimately going to cost the worker more money. But can we, can we go, because we, we need to switch gears in a second here, but I just want to, because I know that there's a, a, a wide variety of opinions on this. If somebody was going to say that this was a positive, what, because I know there are people in the business that are, that are saying that this is a good thing and, you know, predatory producers and this, that, and the other. I, I would like to hear what, what is the positive spin on this? Is there, is there a way that people are in your mind effectively i would say that if, i would I say know. If there's you know any, what i'm asking yeah i mean i would say that you know for the for any producer that was paying below california minimum wage they've got a problem now uh i would say that uh you know for for certain uh producers that maybe were uh not buying or having appropriate insurance for shoots they might have an issue now. And so performers might be a little bit more happy that there's more avenues to go. There would also be more help from the state of California. So as an independent contractor, typically if someone didn't get paid, they'd have to hire a lawyer and go through a private cause of action to get their money back. But if there's a employment dispute, they could always go to the state of California who in theory would, would hire them at the cost of Mr. and Mrs. Joe and Jane taxpayer. So, you know, basically, and I'm just kind of uh, echoing what Raven was writing here, is that bad producers, the ones that are still there, and bad employers, those ones will get sort of funneled out through this, and the ones that are good will be impacted negatively. So, yay. Hmm. Um, and then there's a question, too, about people who are model producers. If you're both an employee and an employer, those are probably finer point questions that really vary. Um, this is actually, that question is specifically why Larry and I just ordered a 50 pound uh, container of Tylenol on Amazon. <laughs> because we're not, no, any, any lawyer, any lawyer who tells you that they've got this figured out right now and they've got all the answers and they can just, they don't, they're full of shit. This is something that is gonna take time to work through. We've gotta see what the courts are gonna do. We've gotta see how the, how the labor decisions are gonna come out. Uh, but regardless, this is a big deal, guys. And this is going to affect everyone in this business, if you're in California. 
All right. Changing directions. And, you know, as you know, Corey always tells us this, and I'll just speak for him right now. If y'all have questions more specific, there's no way we can go through the ins and outs of this all the time. And he's probably doing it right now, putting his email address up there for you to reach out and contact him because really and truly they, there's a lot of uh, stuff with this, but you know, the most thing that we want to do is try to make you aware. And so you know that not only is it coming, but it's already happening. But today we're also going to talk about intellectual property. And this was actually supposed to be our big topic for today, but who knew AB5 was so traumatic? Um, so let's just dive right in here. I'm sorry for this rough segue, but you know, it's the way it goes. So, um, likes it. That's how I love the rough segue, right? <laughs> I want one of the off-road segues with <laughs> the big tires. Just kidding. Um, so why do we care about intellectual property? Why is this important for studios, for producers? Corey and Larry. Actually, let's hear from you, Larry, because Corey is too busy trying to remember his own email address. <laughs> uh, yeah, happy to, uh, to talk on that. I'm really glad that you guys made some time for intellectual property issues on, on this uh, podcast because it's, it's something that uh, a lot of people don't recognize as how important it really is for them. You know, what we say to clients all the time is that intellectual property will be or is your most valuable asset, uh, and it, it has to be properly protected in order for you to fight people that are infringing on your intellectual property rights and for you to properly protect yourself. Um, you know, so things like your business reputation and your goodwill and all of your marketing efforts, everything that you put into your business is your brand name. So that trademark reflects all the years of work and all the effort that you put into your business. And so you've got to protect that brand name so that other people can't try to pretend to be you or use a website that sounds like yours or a domain that looks like your domain. Uh, you've got to protect your reputation and your goodwill through trademark rights. And you've got to protect the content that you create, whether you're a website designer, whether you're a content producer or a performer, you're creating copyrighted works. And there are ways to protect those to make sure that other people don't steal them. And when they do steal them, uh, you want to put yourself in a position where you can enforce those rights and you know, be in a financial position where you're able to do that. And there's, there's ways that you know, we can talk about where it's a lot easier to enforce those rights uh, if you do a little bit of planning. So what are some different types of intellectual property to get us uh, started? Uh, I mean, the, yeah, the, the two main ones that we should talk about uh, that would affect the people watching uh, would be trademarks and copyrights. So the big difference there, trademarks relate to your brand name, the, the name of your business, uh, whether it's you know, a, a, a name of a website or a studio, what have you. And then copyrights are what you create. And um, you know, we can talk about the, uh, the best way to try to protect those different rights and, and how they're typically infringed. Uh, one of the main things that we see with trademarks is domain names that are infringing on somebody's trademark, right? So you, know, you put all this money and time and effort into building your brand and you register your domain and you're going along and then you go, you search your, your search results on Google and you see that somebody else is ranking higher than you. Uh, and you're like, who is this person? It's you know, usually a different spin on your domain. Add some word or a different spelling or a different TLD. And you know, then you're stuck with having to pursue this person, try to get that domain, uh, or you're, you see somebody else that's using you know, a similar name to yours. And that's a real problem because you know, you're losing business, you're losing your reputation. Somebody else could be offering services or products or whatever under your name. They could be inferior, they could be bad content if you're a producer. And that's all affecting your 
goodwill and your reputation in the industry. Um, so that's why you want to lock in your trademark rights and be able to be in a position where you can pursue these people. What happens if you, you're Larry Walters, and I know that there's only one of you. However, the name Larry Walters, there's probably some other person out there with it. So what if you are Larry Walters and that other Larry Walters, he might even be an attorney. Who gets the rights to that? How do you figure that out? Like, how do you, who, how does that work? Yeah, that, that, that's an awesome question for, for this podcast because, you know, there's a lot of performers out there that have stage names or that are using their, either their personal names or their stage name as a brand name. And in the United States, it all comes down to who uses the brand first. So if you have a stage name, uh, and you're the first person to think of that stage name, the first person to use it in, let's say, the adult entertainment industry, then you get to claim that as yours because you're the first to use. And if you can show that you were using a brand name before somebody else did, uh, particularly before they got a registered trademark, then you get to lock in those rights and you're the only one who can use that brand name in the adult industry. What about a tricky person? So Lark is asking about, she uses Lusty Busty Lark and she has been for six plus years. And now apparently, tricky, tricky, there's a Lusty Busty Lara. So an mm -hmm. A on the end instead of a K. What, what, what can Lark do about Lara? Right. And so Sounds that's like the kind asshole. of stuff that- Sorry, Lara. <laughs> exactly. No, that's the kind of stuff that, that Corey and I, you know, think about and talk about all the time in terms of these infringements. Uh, you know, a, a brand name does not have to be exactly the same as another one to be conflicting and, or to be infringing. So in other words, if the two names are confusingly similar, that's the words that we use in trademark law. If they're confusingly similar, if one can be confused for the other, then that's an infringement. So in your example, you know, I don't know how a, a court would ultimately resolve that. They're, they may be confusingly similar. Um, if you have evidence of actual confusion, in other words, if somebody is mistaking the attendee for the other person saying, oh, I thought you were lusty luck, whatever, uh, that's really good evidence of infringement if there's actual confusion in the marketplace. So, you know, what I always recommend is, is any, anybody using a stage name should make sure that they investigate whether they can trademark that's, that stage name and register it with the United States Patent and Trademark Office because then they have ammo to be able to pursue these infringers and it's a lot easier and a lot less expensive if you have a trademark registration. So well, that's um, something that you're, oh, sorry, Neil, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, also, I know in our case, we've had, there's a couple of things. So like you could trademark Lusty Busty by itself, Lusty Busty Lark, Busty Lark. You know, you can get a couple different ones. So if someone does use Lusty Busty anything, you can go after them as well because they have part of your trademark. Like we have clips for sale but we have clips, the number four, clips, F-O-R. So they could do, like there was a guy, clips for free, who was using our, our, our clips for, so we went after him to get the domain name because anything with that, and of course people are always trying to spell our name wrong and like C-I-L-P-S, like whatever they could do to, to, to trick it. Um, and, and of course it costs money, you have to keep going after these people. But if they're really not, um, this is just so, just on, in our case, if, if no one's going to think of this spelling, you can just leave it. Obviously you don't have to go after everything, but if it's a real confusion thing, like, like Larry said, sometimes it really does become annoying, especially with the name um, of, of a model or something where they're trying to trick them purposely and they can prove that they're doing it purposely. 
Yeah, and in your example, you know, with the, the minor variations and misspellings and so forth, you know, the owner of the trademark can pursue any of these infringers, even if the, the trademarks are a little bit different. You know, if they add a word, for example, we do a lot of work for Chatterbait and trademark infringement, and we see constantly uh, domain names that are like Chatterbait Videos, Chatterbait Free, Chatterbait Tokens. The fact that anybody's using Chatterbait as their mark, it gives us the right to pursue them for infringement. It doesn't matter if they add words, if they you know, have different misspellings, if they have different top-level domains, as long as you're using the, the, the most important part of the trademark, the brand name, then you can pursue anybody who's uh, adding on different elements to it or different words or different uh, top-level domains. So, and you know, you, your other point, Neil, about you, sometimes, you know, you let it go if, if people aren't say, hurting you. Uh, you can do that, but you gotta be a little careful there because you can actually lose your trademark rights through oh. what's called abandonment. So if you're not pursuing people, if you're just getting a trademark registration and you do nothing with it, then you can lose your rights through abandonment. So it's a good idea to police, you know, who's infringing on your rights and try to pursue them. Well, some of them, I'm just saying, you don't, you can yeah. go after like, if there's a hundred, you can go after 40 of them and the other right. might be just, no one's going to think of this and there's no traffic to those domains or really not. So, but you should, you need to uh, basically go after somebody. So right. As long as you're doing something to show yeah. that you're enforcing your rights, then you won't have the, a risk yeah. of, of losing them. Because uh, we also get a lot of people to, um, with clip store names, because you can only have one name as a CFRS name, studio name. But we do have some cases where the models are like, well, I had that name first. And for us, it's easy. We just go back and see what store came first and be like, well, that's the one who got it. Now, if that, here's what you'd have to figure out. So if, if I started my clip store in 2006 with this name, but I never trademarked the name, and then I started it in 2018 with a similar name, how do I who gets it and can I, can this person from 2005 go after this person without the trade when they didn't even trademark it? So now it's like a, well, yeah, you did. Cause I always say, do you have a trademark for it? And if you do that, great, but simple scenario, you're, this other person can't have it. Yeah. And that, that's the easy case. And that's, you know, that's basically how Twitter handles it too. If you have a registered trademark, then you can go after these impersonation accounts and infringing accounts of people that are using the same Twitter name as, as your trademark. Uh, but if nobody has a trademark, then you really just have to look at who was using it first. Uh, right. Because you can have what's called a common law trademark, you know, without any registration. You still have rights that you can enforce. It's just a lot harder to do so. It's a lot harder to prove up your trademark rights uh, if you don't have a registration. Um, but yeah, clearly if, if there's a registration, then it makes it a lot easier to decide who has the greater rights. Okay, that makes so, sense. So, you know, I mean, in, in terms of trademark registration, it's, it, it's not a, a terribly complicated process, but there's a lot of nuances to it. Uh, and so, you know, we, we say that it's, it's not a, a do-it-yourself project, not purely out of self-interest, but we see a lot of people come to us that have, applied for trademarks, you know, they've used LegalZoom or they tried to do it themselves. And it's really easy to screw up. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can mess up a trademark application by using the wrong description of services or choosing the wrong class or the wrong specimen. And they're not things that are easy to fix. Uh, because once you make a trademark application, you're saying under the penalties of perjury, that all these things are true. Um, so, you know, the trademark examiner might come back and say, well, your specimen doesn't show your services in this particular class. You can't just submit a new specimen or change what you're doing because you said under penalties of perjury, this is what you're doing and this is how it's being used. So it's, it's hard to fix problems that are 
you know, created uh, if you don't know what you're doing with trademark applications. So it's good to talk to a lawyer. Uh, it can be complicated, even though it looks fairly easy. If you go to the USPTO site, you know, you do a search, nobody has this name, you can submit the application, pay online, and you're good to go. Uh, but there, we see a lot of time bombs that you know, kind of are sticking in these trademark applications when people want to enforce their application or their rights if they get a registration. And then we find out that there was a problem with the way that they got their registration or their, the way they submitted the application. And we have to tell them, sorry, you know, you can't enforce it. It's invalid. Somebody's contesting it. You know, there's issues that come up if you don't do it right. So uh, it, it can be a little tricky, but it's, it's very beneficial once you have the registration makes it extremely easy to pursue these infringers because uh, you don't have to prove up anything. You've, you've got basically all the evidence you need to show that somebody's infringing if you've got a registration and if somebody else is using a, con a confusingly similar name, uh, so, particularly so, in like so in domains. Yeah, go ahead. So to sum up, then you're basically saying that anybody who's like, I'm taking my job seriously and I want to, to be this person, you definitely need to go and trademark your name and move it, on with that. More, some more complicated questions though. So Lark, sorry to keep going on Lark, but she's got all these great questions. So apparently uh, Lusty Busty Lara or Busty Lusty Lara, depending on how confusingly similar she wants to be, she lives in Australia and the real Lark lives in Canada. What kind of international, and then often is working in the United States. So what kind of international stuff can we talk about related to this? And then also, um, what about cross industry? So I've heard of, and I mean, I don't know if these are just urban legends, but of cases where, you know, there was Tara Patrick, the performer who, you know, Tara Patrick is actually Carmen Electra's legal name and trying to trademark those things. And they're in different industries. Like how does, how does that work out type of thing? So if we could talk a little bit about international stuff and also different industries. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And those are questions that come up all the time. Uh, you know, the international question is important because trademark rights are granted by each nation. Uh, you can also get state trademarks, but we're talking about, you know, internet usage and people that, that uh, use their trademarks on the internet. So basically we're, we're talking about federal trademarks in the United States. You get those rights, the USPTO issues a registration, you have the rights with regard to the United States. Now, if somebody else is infringing on your rights in a different country, you can't enforce your US trademark rights necessarily against them if they're only using their name or the brand in another country. It gets a little tricky in the area of uh, domain name use because domains and websites are available throughout the world. And so that's where you have to look at, um, you know, who, who is serving, uh, what audience is being served by the particular services. So we get in these disputes where one domain name is in Australia and they serve an Australian audience. One domain name is in the United States. They serve a U.S. audience. They can coexist without infringing on each other. Uh, but a lot of times they don't see it that way. They're like, look, you know, the search results are coming up and they're showing ahead of us. And people think that uh, we're the Australian site. So in that case, you have to look at you know, who's got what rights in what country. And there are ways you can get trademark rights in a bunch of different countries yep. by filing what's something called the, um, the Madrid Protocol. You can get some 30, 40 different countries oh, wow. uh, locked in to your trademark application all at the same time. So you file one application and you, you expand it to all these other countries. So long as you're actually doing business in these other countries, that way you don't have to worry about the Australian or the UK or the EU usage because you're locking in your rights in all these different countries. So that's what we do with, with clients. We'll, you know, we'll talk to them about what their strategy is. Where are you offering your services? Where do you want to lock down your rights? 
Where do you want to protect? And you come up with a strategy and, and you submit applications where it's you know, best suited for that particular individual. So one thing just to add to all this that I think is important to note, and, and if you guys aren't hearing the theme here that Larry's given you, your intellectual property is an important, valuable asset, okay? You need to treat it as such. And so when, you know, when Larry's saying things like, like, hey, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing this right from the beginning and you don't want to kind of, I'll use the word half-ass because that's, you know, kind of the, the easier way to say it. You don't want to give it that 20% effort or 30% effort and then try to go back and fix it later. You need to be taking this seriously. You need to be looking at this as your performer, uh, your, uh, you know, a figure, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, get it right, protect it, treat it no different than you were a lump of cash. Treat it as an asset that you have to protect right from the start. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's absolutely true and, and it's equally true for copyrights. You know, people that are creating content uh, or designing websites or logos or graphics, whatever it is, that's all copyrighted material. And you, know, you have a very difficult time enforcing copyrights without a registration. Getting copyright registration is very easy. It's a you know, $35 filing fee with the United States Copyright Office. Um, it's not nearly as complicated as a trademark application. And once you get that registration, if somebody violates your copyrights, you're looking at being able to get uh, up to $30,000 against that individual per infringement, plus your attorney's fees. And that's the key. Because if you don't register before somebody infringes on your content, you're looking at no attorney's fees and you're limited to actual damages. What that means in plain, language, in plain English is that you cannot afford to pursue a copyright case against somebody without a registration because all you're gonna get is whatever you can prove you can, you've lost from the infringement. And that can be very difficult to prove actual right. losses. Like Plus you gotta pay your own attorney's fees. <laughs> and so you know, you're talking about spending 100 grand on a lawyer to pursue a federal cause of action and proving up your own damages, which you know, might be very minimal. Um, but if you have that registration, the other side pays your fees and you can be paid yourself up to $30,000 per infringement, up to $150,000 per infringement if you can show the other side uh, engaged in willful infringement, which a lot of this is in the adult industry. So here's a question, $35, that's not a lot of money, especially relative to what you're talking about. So would you recommend for clips producers, for instance, to just build that $35 into their production cost and every clip they're making, they're doing that? I mean, is that wise? Especially because that stuff is frequently pirated. Yeah, it's frequently pirated and it, it makes a lot of sense. We see a lot of content producers do exactly that. It's a cost of doing business. Uh, it's not that expensive. You know, once you've done a couple of copyright applications, you know, you really, you get the hang of it. Uh, if you have a lawyer, they can typically show you how to do them at first and then you can take it over and, and you know, the lawyer can just serve as quality control. Uh, but yes, it's, it's not expensive, it's not complicated, but if you have that registration in hand, then when somebody does go and steal it, you've got some authority to be able to go after them and say, you know, hey, look, take this stuff down, pay me some money, or we're coming after you. And then it's a, a credible threat. You know, if you don't have a registration, people are like, oh, you know, you're infringing on my copyright, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to come after you. Everybody knows that's BS, because you're not going to be able to afford to pay a lawyer to go to federal court over a set of pictures or one video that's not registered with the Copyright Office. But if it is registered, all of a sudden, it's, it's a serious threat. 
all of that for $35. That's, mm -hmm. That's pretty right. wild, right? 35, so, okay. 35 bucks. Have you heard of Larry's no fee guarantee? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Yeah, well, what is that, Corey? I'm not familiar with that. I think <laughs> it's a new pro. You can still go after them with uh, you can still go after the site with the DMCA anyway, uh, and not have the copy and have the copyright. Correct. I mean, that has nothing to do with it. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. You can serve DMCA notices. That's one of the the limited exceptions in terms of things you can effectively do to go after pirates without a registration. Uh, the DMCA does not require that you have a registration to send out a notice to a service provider or a host or somebody uh, that there's an infringement. Uh, but in terms of you know getting any money for the infringement or actually taking somebody to court, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has recently said that you have to have a copyright registration before you can even go to court. Uh, and oh, wow. then to get any money, you know, you really have to have the registration. Otherwise, you're limited to your actual damages. So it's something you're going to have to do anyway if you're going to ever enforce your rights in court. So you might as well do it from the beginning. Yeah. And also going back to the trademark thing also. So if you're just getting started or someone who's saying, I want to get into this industry, I want to be a performer, do some research on the name you pick. Google search it. Do, like you said, do the trademark search. Uh, even if it's a company name you want to do, whatever it is research it, type it in Google, see if it pops up. So you know that at least you're the first one that has whatever name it is you're going to use. And this way, you know, you're going to lock it in and anybody coming after you is obviously uh, second in command there with that. So you yeah. don't have to worry about it. So pick a that, name that's, that no one has. Yeah, that's a really important point, Neil. Uh, point I wanted to make. A lot of people will do a search on the USPTO site and see that it's not taken and say, okay, now I'm good to go for a trademark application. And they submit it. Then all of a sudden they get a demand letter from some other company with a name that's spelled a little differently or sounds the same or rhymes or something else. And it can still be confusingly similar. So it's, it's not enough to just do the USPTO search and see that nobody else has the name. You got to really look into it. And most trademark lawyers will do a, a very thorough search of all the potential uses, state trademark databases, uh, domain name searches, what we call common law uses to make sure that by filing the application, you're not walking yourself into infringement action by somebody else. So that's you know part of the copyright and, and trademark clearance. You got to make sure that nobody else is going to come after you for filing the application uh, when you do it. Exactly. Whew, this is, oh, a, we, we this is some of, serious stuff. Yeah, this is some serious <laughs> stuff. When we do these uh, in the quarry legal zones, there that's no joke. This is, this is no joke. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to heat up today. We need more people to, to really participate in these sort of things because it does affect, you know, everybody. Thousands of hundreds of maybe hundred thousand yeah. people in this industry. So there's always been when you when you get into the legal business, there's one thing as lawyers that we learn very, very quickly that unfortunately too many people take the approach of being reactive versus proactive. And what everyone should be doing and this is just this is just a general rule is that take a second to make that list and be like okay you know i'm getting into this business i've got a b c d and e that i've got to be concerned about get it right from the start take measures to protect your assets and your work right from the beginning when i say that too many people are reactive it's because they wait too long they wait until something comes up or they come to you six years later after they've established a brand and they get a letter that as it turns out someone else was used in the same brand for the last five years you know these are all things that if you if you do these things right from the start you can eliminate more than 90 percent of your future problems right. so 
stitch in time saves nine. That's what my dad used to tell me, and it haunts me to this day. <laughs> exactly. Um, we got another, just as we talked, you know, about like quote unquote conventional content production, Cliff's production. What about um, webcam infringements? What can be done about that, Larry? Can you talk a little bit? Because I mean, a lot of people who are in Clips are also um, camming. What can be done about live webcam infringement? Yeah, that's that's a huge problem, and we see it all the time. Naturally, you know, the, all these shows, the private shows, are recorded and posted on these file lockers, and uh, the the webcam models are having a, a difficult time trying to keep control of the rampant piracy out there. Because you know, who we, owns we, those shows? Yeah, well, you know, the the performer absolutely owns the shows. Um, typically, the the um, agreement with the webcam network says that the model retains the copyright and the network has a license to distribute it. So that's the performer that can pursue those copyright infringements because typically the performer retains the copyrights to the content. Um, sometimes the networks will help them with sending DMCA notices out as we talked a little bit about before. Some of these you know, foreign file lockers and, and uh, piracy sites don't respond to them. And that's where you gotta kind of turn up the heat a little bit as we talked about with having a registration in hand. You know, all of a sudden, if you're staring down the barrel of a federal lawsuit and hundreds of thousands of dollars in infringement damages, yeah, you might be a little bit more responsive to that demand letter or DMCA notice uh, than if it's just, you know, a cam model sending out a thousand DMCA notices to everybody that you know, has a file that, that's uh, infringing. So can a cam model trademark? No. Wait, I'm confusing myself. You're, you're getting trademark and copyright confused now. Yeah, it's, 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 so it's can a cam model? Image. So can a cam model copyright say you know they're going cam to cam and somebody is capping that show and then puts it you know as they do? Can a cam model somehow copyright that live broadcast? Absolutely, absolutely, she can. How? Uh, well, the, the one thing that he or she needs to do is to record it uh, because copyright pertains to tangible medium in, in a fixed expression. So basically it has to be uh, recorded, has to exist somewhere. It can't just be in the ether. So, you know, the best thing to do would be for the cam model to record the show and file a copyright registration. We, we see some models are very strategic about this. You know, they'll do shows or performances that they know are going to be stolen and they'll record a few of them and they'll see that they get stolen and then they'll go after the sites that are stealing their copyrighted recorded shows. And you know, th there can be different strategies that, that are appropriate for each different model. You know, some have more resources than others, some wanna be more proactive than others, um, but you can with a little bit of planning put yourself in a pretty good position to get the message out to these infringers that go after somebody else's content, not mine, because I'm gonna be aggressive in defending my copyrights and enforcing them against infringers. I have a, an interesting question, Chantel, sorry. And this- You this, are calling your own question interesting, Neil? I don't this, know. It, it's gonna be interesting because this pertains to the future as well. So what if I say, okay, this model and this model are the most popular models on this platform and they make the most money. And I make a 3D model of a combination of those two girls or guys and I have my own model now that I just created out of nothing. Oh, like the avatar one. Okay. Sort of, but more, it's getting more and more realistic now where you almost won't know that it's a real person. But you could take the best of this, the best of that, 
uh, obviously you're not going to call the name the same, but as me as the guy who's like, oh, I'm really obsessed with this girl and this girl. Now you have a combination of, or whatever, they can even take the same model and change her look a, just a little bit. Are you just, are, are you, are you describing deep fakes? Is that what you're trying to? Something like that where, where it's becoming possible to do this now where I've, yeah. I've seen it. You know, and I think what you're what you're talking about is is creating a combination of multiple different images. You know, two different performers, and then the question is, who owns that content? Who owns those rights to the images, the likeness? Um, the the issue you raise is a little bit different than copyright because you're talking about possibly an image and likeness claim, and that is something that's a separate right that performers have to their face, to their appearance, to their image and likeness that is separately protected. Uh, but let's say you're taking two pictures and you, you use those two pictures to digitally morph them and come up with you know, something that's new that looks like a little bit like both of them. And the, the, the thing that comes to mind are these apps that show what your baby's gonna look like. You take two pictures and right. they morph them and then it shows what your baby's gonna look like. Um, it's possible that that new image could be what's called transformative so that it's, it's so different from the original to have its own copyright so that you would be considered the creator. Right. Um, but if it, if it includes too much of the original images, then it would be considered what's called a derivative work so that the original owner owns it. You can't steal you know, parts of a work and then claim it's yours, you know, a few right. pages from a book. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty difficult test that the courts have used, a fair use test to determine who owns that and uh, whether or not it's transformative. But if it's different enough, then yeah, then it, it could be yours. And if it's not, it could be theirs. Okay. Oh. Oh. All right, so I, I need to remove all those uh, models, all those core. No, I have a bunch of Corys that I, you know, Corey, <laughs> this Corey with hair, Corey with hair, Corey in Hawaiian shirt, Corey in tank top. You know, you're, 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 I've got a little bit of a sore throat thing going today, so you're, you're, you're real. Corey is Kendall Jenner, right? You're really, you're, you're really, really lucky, my friend. So anyway, on that note, are we, uh, you think we should wrap it up, Chantal? Just, I uh, think that we, I mean, there are so many questions and so much stuff about intellectual property that yeah. is confusing in particular. And I think if nothing else we've learned here is that it's really an accessible thing that, you know, that it's not cost prohibitive. Um, and it's about thinking in advance and really and truly you could save yourself a lot of a uh, pain in the ass down the line if you just started kind of getting proactive with this stuff in advance. And I mean, lusty busty Lara, Lark's coming for you wherever you're at there, girl. <laughs> yeah. You have to, you've, you've, you've got to realize that again, guys, this is not, it, this is not something that is beyond the realm of protecting yourself from. There are solutions there are options and there are things that not that you should be considering doing forget considering these are things you should be doing protect your brands protect yourselves you guys work so hard in this industry to create this content that it frankly it's a shame when i see how many people don't do do more so you know one thing that, that larry and i always do is we're, we're always reachable and and um just basically from what i'm seeing here in our in our chat window i can see this is a topic that people still want to talk about so what of course we'll do is we will plan to do Part another two. we'll do an, we will do another uh we'll plan another seminar uh to further discuss intellectual property because obviously again this is a huge issue that 
uh, our audience wants to talk about and we'll continue to talk about it because if you guys have questions we'll answer them but in the meantime guys don't wait you know uh, Larry and I are always both available we always uh, uh, make ourselves available to clips for sale clientele unless your name is Neil then you have to wait in the back of the line I have to pay double usually mm -hmm. A triple, quadruple, but I mean, they're just jealous of you and your ring light, Neil. They're just jealous. <laughs> That's what it is. You guys don't have the ring light. You're orange and all different colors. He's like, light. I'm glowing. What green light. Look at that. Look how beautiful. Yeah. Oh, you look at you. You look look. You look like a guy who just painted on some facial hair in his face. For the I did. I did. You like that? I I glued it on with school glue. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, ring lights are the best. Thank you, Lark. I, I just I'm just getting turned. I have a a giant ring light too, just in case I need to like light up the whole scene. But now I'm prepared for any future webinars, events, whatever we're doing. I'm, I'm going to carry this around with me everywhere I go. And it goes on your phone too. You just stick it on your phone. So anyway, light. apparently the moral of the day is forget about all of the amazing information that Larry and I gave you. Let's the just talk about ring lights. Is that Neil found a light bulb that works. So ring, an LED ring light. Best in the world. Fan <laughs> Fantastic. Listen, back in the day, we had to carry around a giant halogen thing with us everywhere. It's like, and you get a tan at the same time. It was great. That was that was your that was your breakfast this morning. What are you talking about? Back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you two. Anyway, okay. Well, I just wanted to say thanks again to, of course, Mr. Corey. I'll call him Mr. Corey because I'll give you a little respect. Uh, Mr. Corey Silverstein. Mr. Lawrence Walters, well, AKA Larry Walters, whatever you want to be called, uh, since you have Lawrence on your thing, I'll give you the one, uh One quick closing note, oh, yes. sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but just uh, on behalf of both Larry and I, just note that neither Larry or I are licensed by the state of California. So our AB, the, the portion that we discussed today about AB5 is Larry and I's opinions only. And of course, if you guys want a you know detailed explanation or analysis from a licensed California lawyer, we always encourage you to do so. But I, we do have to state, because Larry and I have our ethical rules, we have to abide by that neither of us are licensed in California. So obviously, uh, now that you all know that. Uh, and you could probably refer someone to them? If, if, yeah, yes, if, 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 if necessary, yes. Okay, so, that's good. So they can contact you for but just But just for those of you who are watching this later on on YouTube and such, I just want to make sure you guys heard that. that Corey said that, and be like, well, Corey doesn't even work in California, so he's not licensed. Yet. Now, as for, my, as for my real closing thought, though, um, between last time's seminar and this time's or webinar and this time's webinar, um, when Chantal and I have continued to discuss is actually we are still seeing this increase in people uh, commenting and messaging us afterwards. I've also noticed that on YouTube, our YouTube views are getting higher and higher and higher each week. So guys, please continue to submit your questions and potential topics early. We always invite that. So if there's specific things that you guys, you know, want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet, let us know. I, I'm, we're going to plan on, I'm going to drag Larry into as many of these as, as he can tolerate with us. Um, and we're going to keep trying to give you guys as much good information as we can. So thanks as always. Keep the amazing uh, topics coming. And Neil, don't forget that bottle of Rogaine. Take it away. Nope. Oh my God. You know, now I just moved it out. I look blue. Now I look at that. The light might be too bright. I might need to turn it down a little bit. Hold on a minute. Oh, now it's off. See? Boom. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I just noticed. Yeah, I didn't shave. Uh, so anyway, so again, uh, Clips for Sale brings this to you. Uh, unlike any other platform out there, we're opening it up to different things, to, uh, you know, to attorneys that 
you know, we give you access, direct access to, to things that you're not going to get on any other platform. So uh, unfortunately, big head over there. I didn't, uh, you don't have a big screen anymore. It's all mine now. So again, thanks to uh, Corey Silverstein, Lawrence Walters, and of course, the one and only Dr. Chantel for coming in. Anybody want to do a one-on-one -on -one with me, of course, talk to Dr. Chantel. We do those all the time, every week. Um, they're awesome to do to, to get to know you personally and to help you out with any ways that you want to get your store, you know, fixed up, make more money, whatever it is you want to do. So anyway, without further ado, I just want to say peace out to everybody. Bye. Bye.